Welcome to Movie Ghoul Round, the film podcast that rotates between different themes every week on a five-week schedule. This is the second week of 2022 Movie Ghoul Round, and this week's theme is, can we just talk about... Hello, everybody. Joining me for our fourth annual movie ghoul round as we continue into the second episode of the season. Nicole Davis, how are you? I'm good. I'm excited. Haven't rewatched this movie since the first time I saw it and feel like I caught a lot more this round. So I'm looking forward to talking about it. Right on, right on. And David Luzader, how are you? Oh, hello. I'm I'm doing well. This is my first time uh, seeing this movie, so, you know, ready to bring a fresh perspective. Very good. Right on. Well, a reminder, everyone, can we just talk about is typically a wheel we spin. It used to be in a far off distant land, Netflix roulette, that got replaced into can we just talk about. And we spin a wheel where each of us pick 10 films that we all really want to talk about, but they don't fit neatly in any of our categories. It's a great opportunity to talk about films we just don't get a chance to here on the show. However, for Movie Ghoul Around this season, we each picked two horror movies of some capacity, horror, thriller, halloween however you want to categorize it, and we spun the wheel. And Dr. Sleep came up, and it was my pick. But before I get into why I picked it, I do want Nicole to take a moment to announce next week's movie so folks can follow along as part of the movie ghoul round, you know, watch a thought of the season. Well, I was super excited because next week, of course, is future classics. And once I realized I was going to get to pick the horror future classic, I was super jazzed. And then I realized that I had like nine movies that I was <laughs> looking at and I got it down to you know three or four on a short list and I ran it past my teenager and he said well you've you've got to do this one this is you know this is a no-brainer so next week we will be discussing hereditary oh god help me (laughs) I'm sorry how uncomfortable can Ari Aster make you with the episode all right uh (laughs) I recommend for anyone who hasn't seen it before Have like a Studio Ghibli or a Disney movie ready to go for right after. Right. To sort of bring you you back. (laughs) Since we already know all five episodes of the season, I would say it's assuredly the darkest of the five. Yeah, I would say so. Well, we don't actually, we don't know what you did this to us. We don't know what you did this to to us is. That's true. Yeah, I doubt it's going to beat Hereditary. Yeah, it would. Well, let's not challenge them too much. I mean, that's true. That's true. (laughs) That's true. Well, this week we watched Dr. Sleep. It came out in 2019. Struggling with alcoholism, Dan Torrance remains traumatized by the events at the Overlook Hotel when he was a child from The Shining. His hope for a peaceful existence is shattered when he meets Abra, a teen who shares his extraordinary gift of The Shine. She spurs him to help her stop the True Knot, a group of psychic vampires who feed off the shine of innocence to maintain their immortality. Dan and Abra must use the Overlook's power to help them defeat the True Knot once and for all. So the reason I chose this film, I have a fondness for this movie. I love Ian McGregor, first of all. So anything he's in, I instantly gravitate toward. I think it's a really interesting extension of the canon of The Shining. and. I think it's a better movie. <gasps> Sorry, everyone. The Shining's a classic. That's boring as hell. <sighs> Send all the tweets to me personally. I love The Shining. I get it. I understand the appeal of it. This is a more fun movie to watch. So Okay, I, I will agree that it's more fun. Yeah, The Shining is all atmosphere. You know? It is all atmosphere, yes. correct. It's tension. It's building tension for a long Long, long time. Correct. And I appreciate it. And I understand its lineage in Stephen King film adaptations. And it's probably the best there is. But with that said, I have a fondness for this movie because I think it takes that that world that The Shining lives in. It grows the atmosphere and the story of it massively and ties it all together really nicely. And I really like what they do with it. 
but I do have some problems with it as well. This would not be a future classic pick for me, for instance. So we can talk about both of those kind of sides of this movie. To kick us right off, I think we should go straight into some of our discussion topics here. I know, David, that this was your first time seeing this. Nicole, you've seen it before. Uh, we've all seen The Shining, though, correct? Before I could continue to disparage it and get tons of tweets. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, several times. Yeah, I, The Shining is one of those movies that I'm not sure I've ever sat down and I've watched the whole thing through, but I have seen over the years uh, <laughs> in, in in parts, you know? It's the Titanic of horror. Sure. The Titanic of horror is exactly what it is. No one has ever seen it in its entirety by themselves. It just doesn't happen. The movie's too long. I'm sorry. And I know this movie's <laughs> two and a half hours. The Shining might even be shorter, but it feels like it's longer somehow. Uh, you guys just wait. I'm going to bring Red Cliff one time, and you're going to have to sit down and watch a five-hour movie. Well, well, I'm not complaining about time. I'm not I am. It took me like 37 days to finish RRR, as cool as it was. Um, in any case, though, this is a book as well, also by uh, Stephen King. Stephen King has come out and said that he much prefers this adaptation to The Shining. I know he's long had some issues with the adaptation of The Shining, but he thinks this one follows the, his story a little bit more closely. So right off the bat, let's talk about some of the differences between the book and the film versions you know, of things like The Shining and Dr. Sleep. Nicole, you put this in our docket, so I'm really hoping you've read them because I have not. <laughs> <laughs> I have. I've actually read both. It's been a while since I read Dr. Sleep. That okay. I've only read the once. But there's The Shining, the book ends with the Overlook blowing up. So hmm. <laughs> that was something that Stanley Kubrick decided that he didn't want to have to deal with, and he just ends the story with the antagonist dying and Wendy and Danny getting away. The book, Dick Halloran lives in The Shining, which is key. So in Dr. Sleep, Dick Halloran is alive. So these conversations that Dan has with him are with a living person and not with a ghost. But I mean, that's a neat trick. Right. For those that don't remember, Dick Halloran is the is the cook in The Shining. Right. He's played by Scatman Crothers in The Shining mm -hmm. and Carl Lumley in this movie. So I think Mike Flanagan does a really neat trick here. He doesn't just direct. He, he wrote the script as well. And so he had to build a bridge between the movie version of The Shining and the book version of Dr. Sleep to be. And he does a really neat trick of taking just enough from both and finding a way to blend them together to pay homage to both the books and the film and have a continuous story that works properly. And frankly, I, I'm very happy with the changes that he makes to it, because in the book, Dr. Sleep, the final confrontation is still at the overlook, but it's basically just at the blasted, empty wasteland of where it used to stand. Oh, interesting. Uh, so I think this is much more interesting and it's much more fascinating that he kind of brings the ghosts of the overlook into it as part of the way to defeat the big bad at the end. Does Dan have the ability to continue to uh, lock these ghosts in his mind vault in the book? Yes. Yeah, I believe so. Interesting. It's, like I said, it's been a while since I read the book. <laughs> it's Chekhov's ghosts. Right. So I mean, the whole time when he's putting them in the boxes, like, which I think is like a, a neat sort of story idea, right? Like he's haunted by these, but he's using these powers to lock them up. And it's like, in the back of my head, I'm like, yeah, but at some point, those ghosts have to come out. Right. Like, you, <laughs> you don't show them locking up the ghosts just to be like, and that takes care of that. Sure. <laughs> All done forever. Yep. Yeah, and multiple people that rummage around in his mind library <laughs> comment on the boxes. Uh, I, I'm glad you brought up Mike Flanagan, because I remember seeing this and then being surprised that it was Mike Flanagan, because you know when this came out in 2019, I don't know when Hill House came out, but Hill House is my first real exposure to him. Hill House was before this. Okay, yeah. interesting. I'm calling him the master of horror for a new generation, and I know that's really broad, and we're going to talk about Ari Aster next week and how that man has horrified all of us to our core. But with that said, Mike Flanagan, the, the stuff he has been putting out for the last five, six years, 
starting with Hill House, Bly Manor, Midnight Mass, this film, he has his finger on the pulse of how to make interesting character-driven horror that does not rely on jump scares. And I just have to laud him for it. And as I have said before, can't normally stick the landing. Listen, <laughs> uh, here, here he, it's far better. I have bemoaned, I think on this podcast, or at least in my personal life. Hill House. Both Hill House and Bly Manor ending with sweet acoustic music while everybody is like, oh, those horrifying events we went through, sure, we're bad, huh? We're all happy. <laughs> You're not wrong. You're not wrong. I love Midnight Mass, though. Yes. I haven't watched Midnight Mass yet. I will I will admit oh, I want to. It's very different. I've, I hear it's great. Uh, it is on my short list. I just haven't had a chance yet. Okay. And he's got a new thing out where it's like a bunch of children, not children, like teenagers stuck in a house that's like a spooky house or something like that. Like he's, he's leaning far into the opposite end of horror, which is the classic teenagers get trapped and scary things try to kill them. So I, I, I like that he's playing with all sorts of types of horror. But this is interesting because it is an adaptation. I don't know if any of the Hill House stuff is. I, mean, I don't believe it is. It, it, what? The Haunting of Hill House is a famous book. Is it? Yes. And yes. movies. And wow. Movies, today yes. I learned. Okay. I assume <laughs> Bly Manor is too then? The the thing that walks there walks alone. Uh, I think Bly Manor is also a book as well, right? Man. Okay. That I don't know. I that guess I'm I got to add these to my reading for the for the spooky season. All right. Um, I, I just wanted to call out Mike Flanagan. I think he's this movie could be ruined by cheap jump scares, and it has none of them. And I really appreciate that. So it's an adaptation of uh, the Turn of the Screw. Okay, interesting. I did not know that. The Haunting of Hill Houses? No, no, no. Bly Manor. Oh, oh, interesting. Okay. Huh. Another. And, one. and is is it Victoria Petrevi also in all of the books, just in everything all the time? Because I'm shocked she's not in this movie, to be honest, because apparently he, she's the only actress he wants to continually cast. Huh? But in any case, the differences between the theatrical and the director's cut, uh, before we get into kind of the, the details of the movie, Nicole, I, I was hoping you could you could illuminate this for us, having seen the director's cut and spent three hours of your life on it. <laughs> it is. And it is literally almost exactly three hours long um, <laughs> with the director's cut. But. But. It is a little bit emotionally richer. I've found his conversations with Dick Halloran are a little bit longer, but the bulk of the extra minutes are at the Overlook Hotel. The uh, interchange with the bartender is a lot longer. They actually have a scene in the red bathroom that's famous from The Shining. So it all just adds more character beats and development. And honestly, I didn't have a chance to rewatch the theatrical cut. Do you feel like the scene at the bar uh, in the gold room that Dan has with the Lloyd slash his dad slash the ghost of the hotel? Do you feel like that comes to like an emotional that it delivers emotionally for you because I think it really does in the director's edition. I don't think it does in the theatrical oh. cut. I don't know what's really? different, but in the theatrical cut, I really dislike the scene, but we'll, we'll get into really? it. Really? I actually really liked the scene. Oh, really? No, by all means, what do you like about it? And do you think it delivers? I mean, yeah, I, you know, I like that. Um, I mean, I, I know we had another discussion topic later about, how they recreate these scenes from The Shining. And I, mm-hmm. I want to give ups to Mike Flanagan for not just doing what is so in vogue now and CGIing Jack Nicholson's face onto someone else. Right. They find someone that evokes that feeling. At a glance, you might think that maybe it's Jack Nicholson, uh, especially like with the way they make him up. And I just, I just really liked Dan's journey throughout the story, especially like the fact that his alcoholism didn't just disappear. Mm-hmm. Uh, it kept kind of being this, this hint or this thing, like this ghost, hey, there we go, uh, following him throughout everything. And when he gets to this scene where he's speaking to the hotel who is taking the form of his father, he's confronting all these things he's kind of carried about his father that he has not really probably dealt with, let's be honest. He's right. got a lot of stuff uh, he has not dealt with. And I'm sure that a longer version of the scene probably could have added a little bit more to it. But I, I really 
liked their conversation. I liked him confronting this part of his past that he's obviously put off for so long. It is the stuff of like, oh, you know, I remember getting my hands on one of these bottles when I was a kid and it smells like you. This was your brand, Jack Daniels. I used to see the bottles in our home, our real home before all this. I smelled one once. It smelled like something on fire, which I suppose it was. You know, it's that violent rejection, not only of the alcohol at that point, but also mm-hmm. the, the complete rejection of like, I'm not going to be you. Right. And because that, that's what he's been fighting against his whole life, right? Is he saw right. what this place did to his father and he fell into that for a time. But now it's like, no, I, you know, that it's not just enough that he smashed the bottle earlier. It's like now when he's faced literally with his demons, mm-hmm. he is like, no, I'm still standing against it. I'm still standing as myself here. Right. Yeah, you make me like that scene more than that scene does. Uh, (laughs) You know, he's trying desperately to get closure. Yeah. Don't you want to hear about it? She was your wife. I think you've mistaken me for someone else. I'm just the bartender. Oh, yeah. Just Lloyd the bartender, pouring joy at the Overlook Hotel. Pour whatever you like, Mr. Torrance. Oh, Dad. He he is. He he's and that, I think that's what my, my frustration with the scene is, is that he's grasping at these straws that the hotel is not willing to to bite back on. So it's just a one-way conversation the entire time, and it, it doesn't hold me as interested. I am on the opposite end of the spectrum. I kind of wish they had just done a little de-aging here. It really throws me that the guy doesn't look like Jack Nicholson. I buy the Shelley Duvall mother pretty well. I think she looks pretty close, mm. but there's just something about, and it, and it happens a second later in the movie where they show flashbacks of The Shining and they show this this guy made up as Jack Nicholson doing the whole walk with the axe, mm. and it just looks like a costume party to me. Ah. The guy's face is way too round. He doesn't match it. They just put, they found a guy that was close enough and gave him the sideburns and it throws me. It really does. Well, I mean, the problem is no matter how they cast it or how they handled it, it was going to be a problem for somebody. Yeah. I mean, yeah, <laughs> that's true. You're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Nobody, no one looks like Jack Nicholson. No, <laughs> he is very distinctive. No one talks exactly like Jack Nicholson. And the voice wasn't right either. Yeah, no one looks like Shelley Duvall. I'm so okay. I'm glad they didn't try to make the voice. They are two shockingly distinctive people now that you call it out. Like, especially distinctive people in Hollywood. Right. They're particular. You know, I would have hated it if they'd like cast Christian Slater and made him up to look like Jack Nicholson. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'd hate that more. Because he's the closest guy who can hit the voice naturally. I'd have hated that. I agree with that. that. I would hate that more. Yeah. So mm-hmm. besides what he's doing, which I caught this time, when he's, maybe it's because his speech is a little bit longer, but, you know, it's Henry Thomas, who's made up to look like Jack Nicholson, who's playing the bartender. And... When he's first talking to Dan, he's channeling the performance of the man who played Lloyd in The Shining. Hey, everybody. Nicole just popping in real quick to supply the name of the actor we're talking about. His name is Joe Turkle, very famous for both this role and his role in Blade Runner. But he had a long career in movies starting back in the late 1940s. So go look him up. Joe Turkle. He's not doing Jack Nicholson at first. Mm -hmm. He's doing Lloyd. How's my credit in this joint anyway? Your credit's fine, Mr. Torrance. It'll cost me eight years. Your credit is fine, Mr. Torrance. No charge to you, Mr. Torrance. No charge? Your money's no good here. Orders from the house. This trip will cost an awful lot. Your money's no good here. Orders from the house. So when it, as they're talking, and as the hotel keeps trying to, you know, tempt Dan with the alcohol and the, the chat and as like a, final push 
it turns into Jack. And then you really hear the vocal inflections change and get sharper and you feel that anger boiling up, you know, where he finally gets yeah. to the point, are you going to take your medicine? Mm-hmm. Those mouths eat time. They eat your days on earth. They just gobble them up. It's enough to make a man sick. And this is the medicine. So tell me, Bob, are you gonna take your medicine? I'm not. Dan says no, and he does, you know, what his father would have done, which is knock the glass across the room, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's, it's his final repudiation of his father. And it's the Jack Torrance of it. The Jack Nicholson of it is a last ditch attempt by the hotel. Mm. Yeah. I'll have to look that up on YouTube because I'd like to see the longer cut. Yeah, I'm glad they didn't try to do the voice, to be honest, because we all we all can do a Jack Nicholson impression. It sounds like a Jack Nicholson impression. You know, <laughs> right. no one so sounds true. like Jack Nicholson. He gets the he goes for the cadence more than anything. Right. Which which like totally works. And I, I, I never saw this in theaters. I'd be curious what the audience response is to that scene. Most people hate it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Most people hate Henry Thomas as Jack, but yeah. I think he on seeing it a second time, I think he actually does a really good job, particularly when I realize that he's doing Lloyd at first. That's so, so funny. I was like, okay, I'm glad they're going this route. That's that's interesting. I didn't know I was in the minority. Yeah, no, but but that and but that's interesting, right? Like we each had very different responses to that. To your point, David, I I do respect just rejecting that because you are right. It is. This is going to be a weird sentence. It's weirdly easier to de-age the Hollywood icon and just de-age his voice to make it look like he's young again. Because you're right. We do it for everything. Yeah, except Nicholson's retired. Like very firmly retired. Oh, is he? It's like a Connery retirement. I guess Connery's dead now. So I think so. Yeah. But um, (laughs) okay. Uh, Yeah, I did not know that, actually. So uh, the expansion of the lore uh, David, you put this in our docket. Yeah. And that's my favorite part of this movie is that, and, and Dave, I'll let you speak to it because you, you put it in here. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah. You know, the the Shining is very vague in, oh, he has this sort of thing called the Shine, which allows him to like read people's minds and see the futures and speak to the dead or something. And it works really <laughs> well for the Shining. It's this vague atmospheric thing. Here, though, they explain, they don't quite explain what it is, but they start explaining like, oh, there's there's other people who have it, obviously, because Halloran knew about it. Um, so obviously other people must exist out there with it. Uh, and we see like what some people who have this ability do with their lives and with their time and mm-hmm. uh, what sort of things are possible. And it just it made this world a little bit richer. And I like that there's sort of this thing of like, oh, the shine is going away for whatever reason. It's right. It just took this idea and it like it did something interesting with it versus like keeping it. If they just kept it vague, and it's like, oh yeah, and I also have the shining. It's like, oh, okay, cool, great. But it's like they actually they there's some stakes there, right? Like the knot, whatever your opinion on the knot is, hmm. they have a drive. They have a drive to especially yeah. find Abra to to hunt Dan. And it's just it's interesting. It is really interesting, and that's what I love about this film, is that, I mean, The Shine ends up being kind of a MacGuffin on the other on the other end of it, which is like, it just seems to kind of do everything the Force can do, and then some. <laughs> like, it does seem like this movie does find a way, new ways to utilize The Shine to fit its purposes. The scene in the car, when they crash the crow's car, comes to mind, where not only can Dan now get into the body of abra but then utilize her to force turn crow turning the car wheel in you know into off the off the road seems to me you know enough to know you might want to sit this one out count your blessings go on your way what's so funny friend well it's just arrogance it's arrogance really but makes sense if you think you're gonna live forever stands to reason of course you wouldn't wear your seatbelt.
Like there's a lot of stuff that happens in this that is a little bit stretched in terms of what the shine is available to do. But with that said, this ties into what I think my, my unpopular opinion on the movie probably is, which is that I really dislike the last half hour of this movie. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. If I was Mike Flanagan, I'd want to do the same thing. Nicole, when you mentioned that a lot of the extra scenes are in the overlook, color me surprised that the lifelong horror fanatic (laughs) decided to overshoot a bunch of scenes in his custom recreation of the overlook set. But with that said, this movie to me, as someone who's never read the books, shows me that the world outside of the Overlook is so much more interesting, that there's more happening, that there are different kinds of people, that they have different abilities, that some can make people fall asleep and some people can get them to listen to them. And, you know, some people are eating other people's shine and there's all this interesting stuff going on. And then we just go back to the hotel in the woods. And to me, as cool as it is to see the recreation of the Overlook and as cool as it is to be in that environment... The last 30 minutes, to me, feels like a giant homage fan film, all the way down to the point where Dan literally starts chasing her through hallways with the exact same limp that his dad did before him. Mm. I I don't want this to end at The Overlook. I want it to end somewhere else entirely different because The Overlook, to me, in a world of the shine where one of the not has literally been around, as Rose says, since the days of ancient Rome, why does this have to end at a hotel in Colorado. As the psychic, and that—that's what—that's what's weird to me. Because the hotel's hungry. That's where he takes it there because the, for for a purpose. Are there other hungry places though? That's what I'd want to know. Like, but where does? But he's not. He knows. Dan of one. knows that one. Yeah. <laughs> He doesn't. Sure, sure. But that's my problem. I, okay. Also, they just drive cross country like it's nothing in this movie. Yeah. I just want to call that <laughs> yeah, out. They do. Every five minutes, they're in a different state. Like, oh, where are we going? Colorado. Cool. You're in Massachusetts. See you in like 15 to 30, 30 hours or whatever. Yeah, more like 30. It's yeah. not a short drive. Yeah. As someone who has often driven yeah. between Salem, <laughs> Massachusetts and Wooster, Ohio, which is literally right. 700 miles each way, it is tiring mm-hmm. <laughs> right let alone going out to you know estes park right going to is... iowa and going to colorado yeah, yeah that's the other thing is they go to iowa and then go back yeah, go and back. then drive yeah. back the other direction again <laughs> later on yeah they move pretty and I, i've moved across the country and whoo it is not a uh, not a short drive agreed yeah. <laughs> not fun not fun you and i kind of did crisscross directions on that in the last two years arduous yeah yeah, but I don't. I, I know I'm in the minority here. I know people like this ending, but I just for me it doesn't do it. Yeah, I mean, I see what you mean about it being a fan film. You know, I watched the sure. special features on the disc, and it's very clear that everyone working on this movie was super excited to get to the part where they recreate the Overlook Hotel. <laughs> totally. Like literally, they were all taking turns on the big wheel, riding it down the hallway, and giggling to themselves and having a grand old time. Those were the only things they rebuilt. They rebuilt the gold room, the the Colorado room, which is like the big ballroom with the typewriter and the staircase. Did they go and film at the Stanley Hotel again? No, they built it. It's all a soundstage, including the outside part of the Overlook is a soundstage. They also did not film the original the Stanley Hotel. Did they not? No. Yeah, it's just exteriors at the Stanley. Really? I have been to the Stanley. I'll, yeah, and that is actually one of the reasons why Stephen King really dislikes the original film, because like he wrote about the Stanley Hotel very specifically. So when they did the, the 90s miniseries, he was like, no, you have to do it at the actual Stanley Hotel. So they wouldn't actually film there. The actual Stanley Hotel is much more cramped. Uh, the bar that was the inspiration for the the Golden Room is not as grandiose, let's say. And the hedge maze is like about a foot and a half high. So there's <laughs> yeah. some real differences there. Oh, yeah. yeah. In the book, it's topiary animals. It's not a hedge maze. I love how much bigger the hedge maze is, too, in this version. Well, yeah, because he was a kid. So like his version of it in his head is... yeah. I mean, yeah, the hedge maze, he remembers it as huge. Right. Yeah. That's a, that's a good call out. I didn't realize that. Yeah. If you lived in Colorado at some point, you've very likely taken the tour and, and gone and seen the Stanley. And I have. Uh, I did just pop on their website and the Shining Ball is every October 22nd. Come play with us, which sounds pretty <laughs> rad. That's a pretty good way to spend a weekend in October. They milk it. Uh, the other movie that has uh, filmed a good chunk there is Dumb and Dumber. So they also have some Dumb and Dumber (laughs) stuff up around. 
Great. Wait, is the Stanley Hotel where the banquet is with the owl? No, it's the hotel like that they're staying at. It's not like a ton of scenes are filmed there. Okay. I think it's also that part when he's like, "We put a man on the moon." We need. We should talk about Dumb and Dumbers. <laughs> I thought it was a scene where they kill an owl with a cork. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Interesting. I did not know that. Uh, but yeah, the recreation of the Overlook Hotel as a whole is really masterful. Mm-hmm. It really. I've seen a ton of side by sides, and it was painstaking. Like to your point, Nicole, they were passionate about this, and they got it right. Oh, to the point where they typed up all the pages, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. They actually had somebody sit down and type that out on that typewriter. On that typewriter. I love it. Which is the exact model. It's not the typewriter from the original film, but it's the exact same model that they used. I Well, as there's anything we learned last week, you have to use the same typewriter. That's very important in Goosebumps. (laughs) Very important to use the same typewriter if you want it to have the same effect. Yeah, I do love how apparently after the Overlook shut down and, you know, was sent in the disarray, they just left literally everything exactly as it was. There was no sale here. Nothing was removed. Jack's chair is still exactly where he pushed it over. I'm not sure if it's not meant to be like the hotel has kind of restored itself, you know, like Christine sort of thing where it's... Mm brought back certain aspects of itself like the gold room looks great the red bathroom looks great but when they first walk into the hotel you know the wallpaper is peeling and there's mold growing on the walls and you can see there's their water pipes have broken somewhere and it looks very shabby and run down but in certain areas it looks almost brand new agreed Hmm. well do you know what else is shabby and run down dan at the beginning of this movie uh, Dan's not doing so hot. Uh, wait, smooth, smooth segue there, Brett. Because <laughs> we have a, a discussion topic of Dan's not well-adjusted life. And boy, <laughs> did you know he get ridden hard and put out wet yeah. uh, for the first 30-something years of his life following uh, what happens at the Overlook. Well, I think it's more after his mother dies. You're mm-hmm. right. It's between 20 and 30-something because his mom dies when he's, when he's 20 and then he seems to go off the deep end. He develops a drinking problem much like his father. And man, is he worse for wear when we introduced to him in this movie. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, he's beaten men maybe to death in a bar. Oh, my it's God. It's never cleared up about whether or not he beats that man to death mm. and hooking up with uh, random women who die in their sleep from an overdose. And then he just leaves the situation <laughs> entirely. And it's, you know, it's not a good place to be in life. No. Big bummer. Right. In the book, I think it's meant to be ambiguous whether she's dead or not. Because I don't think he'd have left the baby on the bed with her if he thought she was actually dead. dead. Yeah, that could have just been a nightmare. I got the impression she died after the fact. That, like, she was alive when he left. Right. You never find out in the book for certain yeah. whether she died or not. He's just sort of haunted by this, by her appearance. And he thinks he's not sure if it's him seeing an actual ghost or if he's tormenting himself with the idea that maybe that happened and he didn't bother to check to find out if she had a pulse or, Mm. you know, call one of the neighbors or anything before he left. I do love that when her arm wraps around him in the bed and he turns around, (laughs) he's like, oh, yeah, okay. Because he's so used to it at this point. And he's not really distressed in that scene until ghost baby comes out once ghost baby comes out that's something new and that does seem to terrify him Mm -hmm. i think he's distressed i just don't think he's freaking out and throwing himself out of the bed because he's used to ghosts sort of showing up He's not having the the response one would (laughs) but when confronted with something horrible that he's done right he's properly upset at himself as he should be (laughs) she just turns to him and says they haven't found us yet. Ugh, yeah. It's Ugh. just... Ooh. Ugh, that, that was the most terrifying Whoa. scene for me. <laughs> yeah, that they haven't found us yet. I leave my kid crying so no one, th- no one thinks to check. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. I, I do love, though, I remember when, again, having not read the book, this movie came out, I thought that Dr. Sleep was going to be some sort of big bad. And early on, I thought that it might be, you know, the 15-year-old girl that gets turned into one of the squad, the knot because she can like make people fall asleep. And that is a running theme throughout several parts of the movie. But the fact that it is what the folks in the hospice call him 
because he becomes known just like the cat <laughs> to be the one that comes to you in your final moments and comforts you mm-hmm. is just so, so fascinating to me in his character development over the eight years from when he comes to that town in New Hampshire and is able to get sober and find a positive way to use the shine mm-hmm. in a way I don't think he's ever been able to his entire life. Mm-hmm. And it's really powerful. I'm not a doctor. Oh, I think you are. Dark to sleep. Dark, I am so scared it's going to hurt or be dark or uh, be nothing at all. And I don't want to be scared of just going to sleep. Finally, true, restful sleep. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Doc. Look, I shouldn't be here. Let me go get no, you some. No, no, You're exactly where you should be. Yeah, I really like Dan's journey in this. I, I really am, I buy into it, and I like it. Right. But you don't buy into his accent is what you're saying, David. Okay, listen. I love you, McGregor. <laughs> his accent is very obvious. He has spent a lot of time making it sound good, and it does. It just sounds a little too good. It's like a little too practiced. <laughs> like he has spent a lot of time with somebody who obviously walked him through like, here's how to, you know, make this sound and make this. It just, it's just, you know, it's a little too, just like a little too practiced. Still getting visits from them old ghosts? Well, not for years. Horace Derwin was the last one. Confetti on his suit. Said, great party, isn't it? And grin on his face till I pulled out a box for him. That grin went fast. Right. Yeah, they have interviews of him on set when I was looking at the features, and he's right back into the Scottish accent oh, yeah. when he's doing the interviews. Oh, really? I believe it. And it throws you off a little bit because, wait. <laughs> but yeah, it does. There's a certain... Uh, Rigid pronunciation? I don't know. Cadence. There's a There's a certain vowel pronunciation that UK actors tend to have when they're doing an American accent that's not Southern. Mm -hmm. People from other countries love doing a Southern accent because they think it's easy. Andrew Lincoln, Uh, I would believe he was Southern all day long. Right. But the doing, you know, like a mid-Atlantic or Midwestern accent is a little harder for them. And you get sort of this trademark uh, flatness to it. Yeah. Yeah. There's a rigidity to it for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You guys aren't wrong. I, I think he handles it pretty well. No, I think it's good. It's, it's not, it didn't distract me from the movie. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I do love him in this role. I just, you know, I mentioned at the top of the show how much I adore him. And that's more than just Obi-Wan. I just think he's a great actor and I've loved many of the movies he's been in beyond that. But I just, I think he carries this character really well. And yeah. I, mm-hmm. just like David, I buy into his development. But. Why? Why'd you got to bring Billy? Like, that's one of my biggest problems with this movie is I love Billy. Billy's great. Billy's the best friend you could possibly ask for. Don't bring Billy to dig up the dead kid in Iowa. Just don't do it. Just don't. Southwest flights are cheap. Like, just hop on a plane, find the dead kid, rent a car at budget. You don't have to bring Billy. Yeah, they could have done more to develop, I think, their relationship a bit. And then he dies in just such a throwaway way just in like a quick moment in the in the script they're just like hey kill yourself and billy just kills himself and it's it's so disrespectful to how cool billy is you know there has to be the stakes right yeah it has to show like because it's like what crow daddy which is a crow daddy we don't have to talk about that name it's a very Uh, stephen king kind of thing very stephen king (laughs) so is uh but like when he's saying you know it's like nobody's really i mean yeah we've won in a way i've gotten you i'm gonna take you back to rose but like everybody's kind of lost in this situation nobody's having a great time i'm cool though with them killing abra's dad like that made sense to me he wasn't terribly developed but he was an obstacle and we were warned that that would happen but just for Billy to die just so unceremoniously was such a bummer in this movie. It is a bummer, but I mean, I think it serves a purpose in the film. You know, yeah. Dan has to be unrooted. The debt must be paid. At the end of the film to be able to free to carry out 
his plan properly. And I think it really suits the character of the people that the true not chose to be part of their group that out of sheer spite, this girl's last act on earth is to make someone kill themselves. That's what she spends the last of her energy doing. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's just fits the supreme selfishness of this group of people. That's a really good point, Nicole. Uh, I did not think of it that way. Uh, the knot, though. Let's let's talk about the knot. Okay, so do people hate the knot? I feel like people have to hate the knot. I can tell you right now, they're they're done so much better in the movie than they are in the book. I really? think in they're the, even worse in the book. In the book, they to me in the book they feel much more sort of shoehorned into it. Whereas this, it feels like a more natural expansion of, like you said, you know, people with the shine and how they can go in different directions and different yeah. abilities. Exploring what happens when people who are not good people have the shine. What happens then? How do they use it? What do they mm -hmm. do with it? What happens when they find one another? Yeah. And they, of course, develop this horrible, evil circle of sucking children's souls out and it's awful and and the pain makes it better it purifies steam right which makes that even more hideous yeah <sighs> so i mean i i think i don't love the knot at all but i also don't know what the enemy would be in this movie if it weren't for them mm -hmm. so my problem is not the knot necessarily it's how Stephen Kingy they are. <laughs> it's that I don't need them to be Rose the Hat and Miss Snake or whatever and Tony the Tiger and Crow Daddy. <laughs> like, I don't need them to have these stupid names and ridiculous physicalities to them that some book writer was like, I'm going to make her. She's going to wear a hat. Like, Ugh. the hat is dumb. I know David also thinks the hat is dumb. God, I hate that stupid hat. It makes everything she does less interesting because you, it's less believable because of how dumb she looks in it. I, I would not oh. begrudge the group of the knot if they were just a bunch of mean people that didn't call each other Crow Daddy. So here's, that, here's I would buy it more. I figured it out watching it. What vibe Rose the Hat has? She is <laughs> your friend's mom who is divorced. In her like late forties, <laughs> early fifties, and is like, I'm reinventing myself. Hey, no. I wear hey, a hat. Hey, now. hey listen, hey. I'm not saying that you no, listen, <laughs> I'm not saying it's universal for all women who do this. I'm saying it is your mom's friend who did, and you know, she th this is like, I, you know, I wear a hat now and I have I wear feathers in my hair. <laughs> just right like, right like everything there's a couple her. errant braids in the hair yeah oh my god oh nicole puts oh, on no. her hat lovely oh, it's not the oh hat. david time out for david no mine is, mine is a classic felt fedora that is it, it's not yeah. a magician's top hat perfectly uh, nice it is not that although that is an actual top hat that they cut down to sort of scale to suit her face better but it's genuine beaver felt. <laughs> I mean, at that point, just go as cartoonish as you want. I didn't mind that. I think she looks good in the hat. During the onset interviews, she was still like a little in character and she pulls out the hat pin and she says, oh, this is excellent for sticking under children's fingernails to cause more pain. And oh, boy. Yikes. Help purify the steam. And I'm like, oh, God. Yikes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and like, who are these random idiots in the knot? Is that they established three or four of them fairly well. And then in the scene where billy and dan are just icing them from a distance i realize that there's like eight of them that i've never seen before that scene they just exist in the knot so that's my other problem is that there's just too many of them like three or four of them don't get any lines or they get no it's, it's just like you know baseball glove joey and the snake and yeah okay oh my god can we yeah let's talk about baseball boy's death by the way we oh. kind of <sighs> Oh. We kind of cascaded over that. I don't think I've ever seen in a movie maybe such a gruesome child death. It's pretty bad. It's pretty gruesome. I'm trying to think of another one. I don't want to Google movie child deaths. You don't see. You don't see a lot. You see like blood spray, but you don't actually see the wounds that they inflict. 
you hear it on him. It's just all implied and it's implied horribly well. I mean, this is, mm-hmm. this is the most disturbing scene for me in the movie because um, I didn't realize until, you know, looking at the special features that the, the boy is played by Jacob Tremblay of mm-hmm. room and uh, Oh really? I didn't recognize him. Yeah. What is it? Before I wake. Yeah. I think yeah. It's called. And so he's like one of the best child actors in his age range there is. And Mike Flanagan said he practiced by himself at home. And so when it came on the day to the shoot, you know, they're laughing and giggling and then they roll camera. And he was so distressing that, you know, they had had a bunch of cameras set up to get his face and the reaction shots of the people in the knot. And he said, you know, after the first take, he said, okay, that was great. I can't (laughs) use any of the footage of your guys' faces because they were all so horrified. Well, that's good. They could not keep it off their faces. And he's like, no, you're, you're supposed to look like you're enjoying this. So, but yeah, it is. It's incredibly effective. It's incredibly believable how badly they're hurting him. Jacob Tremblay is selling it. Oh yeah, a hundred percent. Like it's so it's such an effective scene. And you're right, like you don't see everything, but like, you know, just enough. Uh, right. It's you you know that they're they're torturing him and causing physical pain, and uh it's it's not good to watch. No. No, no, no. Uh, what do you guys think of the performance of looking up the name here? Uh, Andy Snakewind. Uh, Kylie Curran, who uh, is the who is who plays Abra. Uh, great. I thought she was fantastic. Yeah, she's really I, good. I think she's really good. Apparently, they saw like almost a thousand girls to find her. Eventually, she does really? such a good job, and I think not just as. I mean, she does a great job. They did a fantastic job casting the younger version of her. Looks just like her. For sure. This The little girl version of her at like four or five looks amazingly like her. And she's great, too. But the you know, Kylie Curran is so good, not just at being herself, you know, being a young teenager, being desperate to fit in and be accepted by her parents so she's been you know pushing down her own talents but now that she's found it awakened by the death of the baseball boy you know Bradley Trevor mm-hmm. it's such a psychically powerful event that happens that it sort of wakes her back up and makes her determined to find out who this kid was who killed him who they are, how to try to stop them because she knows they'll do it again. And she's so good at projecting that drive and determination to do what she believes to her core is the right thing, which is, you know, when you're a young teenager, you know exactly what's right, you know exactly what's wrong, you know exactly how the world should work, and by golly, why doesn't it work the way you think it should? And, you know, you mm-hmm. you don't get as much complication it's a lot more black and white thinking at that age and she really captures that and then she does that amazing job that scene in the car where she's supposed to be dan inside her body and so she's channeling ewan mcgregor's performance as dan and it's so amazing how well she carries that off i feel hungover Told you it's good shit. I haven't felt hungover in years, and you know I don't miss it, not even a little. Last, huh? Stand off the major routes. Smart. Crownville, New York. Who are you? I'm the guy that killed your friends. Yeah. It's a great scene where she's rambling on about how. Oh, I haven't been hung over years. years. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's so good. I really liked that. Yeah. She also, I also appreciate that she's not an hysterical child in this movie. Mm-hmm. 
She understands the finality of the situation. Dad is dead. Throw the phone out of the car window. Don't talk to mom till this is over. Mm-hmm. There's something weirdly refreshing about that in a young actress in a movie right. where they're not freaking out at what's happening around them, whereas I certainly would be. Well, and she's not like the character in Moonfall who insists, oh, it's on airplane mode. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> she's, she knows. She tells her mother, you know, I'm, I love you and chucks her phone out the window yeah I love, like, yeah that poor woman <laughs> oh i know having the worst oh, that day mom. of her life i oh boy yeah her husband is dead her child is missing she has no idea where she is she's sure she must be in danger uh-huh. i uh i can't imagine and you also have to hope that Abra's life after the fact turns out better than dan's did because she saw dan's journey because she does end up in more or less the same spot he did one parent down and <laughs> sealing away ghosts in your mind because as the movie alludes to in the final scenes she seems to be able to do the same because ugh, bathtub lady comes back like so much in this movie <laughs> enough bathtub lady i've seen it it's, it's been locked <laughs> in my mind since i first saw the shining and i'm sick of seeing it so but something for the fans the big fans of it the is, movie, yeah. The Shining. They love, it's Mrs. Massey is the name of the character. <laughs> and they yep. love her for yep. some reason. <laughs> Apparently, I did find out that the actress like was just walking around on set in the suit and didn't, Ooh. because she's covered. It's all like latex yeah. covering her body. So she didn't feel naked. So she's just walking around with like a robe hanging open over at the craft services table. <laughs> Just like not, not so hungry anymore. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I just love the idea for walking around, like waving at people, just, you know, <laughs> having a nice normal day. I don't know that she needs to be there, but I mean, it's this movie is partly about generational trauma. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And it, it makes sense that Dan ends up where he does, because that happens as determined as children of alcoholics are to not repeat their parents mistakes a lot of times they they feel like that's the only way to deal with their pain from being through the trauma of having a parent who's an alcoholic is to dive into the bottle themselves it Mm -hmm. happens a lot yeah and i you know and he's also coping with a lot of really horrible things (laughs) right right he alludes at aa to the drowning of the the shine, mm. you know, with drinking as well. But you are right. There is this generational trauma where every generation, whether they like it or not, seems to carry and have to deal with at least part of the trauma from the generation preceding them. And that's going to be the case with Abra, unfortunately, you know, because of her involvement with Dan, I don't think her life will be totally clean cut after this by any means. Oh, no. But I hope she's got a better shot. I think so. Yeah, I think she seems to have a good head on her shoulders. She seems to be Uh, Harvard in three years, hopefully still uh, (laughs) make dad proud. A a couple final discussion topics. Uh, I do want to call out Alex Esso. Uh, You know, Nicole, you put in our docket. She gets the essence of Shelley Duvall without it being a parody. Mm. And I think that's a fine line. (laughs) It is. It's a very fine line because it's a very distinctive performance that poor woman stanley kubrick just wrung out of her almost physically um yeah but she really she had to recreate the scene where jack bursts through the bathroom door in the shining and like she had to stand on the same mark and hold the knife in the Mm -hmm. same way and react in roughly the same way but it's not an imitation you know the scenes that she has with young danny down in florida She's again, it's she goes for the cadence and not the exact vocal pitch and they don't get the look exactly right. They get like the hair roughly right. They get the mm-hmm. the way she dresses right. And so it's up to Alex Esso to sort of cross the rest of the way and bring in the just the feel of her as a character and not precisely the one from the overlook because she's grown. She escaped this. She found the strength within herself to get her and her child out and to safety and to a new life. There. All dry. What happened? 
You have to talk to me, Danny. You haven't talked since we left. Please talk. Please. Mm -hmm. I, she's great, but there is one scene where she's like, oh, Danny. You scared me half to death. Just like the way that she says it is a little <laughs> bit like amusing, but she knows she's, she does a really great job. Uh, she, she does, ev again, she's evoking that character. Um, I, I, smart yet again, I think to just recast that and not have creepy CGI Shelley Duvall walking around <laughs> on set. <laughs> Much prefer recasting yeah. to doing CGI face swapping. Yeah. And and I like, you know, I like that they reshot that scene. They didn't just put in the scene from The Shining, which, you know, it's late enough in the movie. Most people would have just forgotten probably because she looked close enough that people would have just been like, oh, yeah. It's scene. Like, I like that they redid those scenes. I, I think Mike Flanagan was very smart in how he's like, well, we're going to treat this. As, it is a sequel, but, you know, I'm going to work with what I've got and not, mm -hmm. not try to force in necessarily just The Shining exactly as it was. I think, Nicole, your point there might hit the nail on the head as to why I like her performance a lot more than I like the guy playing Jack, which is that I get to see more of her and I get to see her growth after the fact. Mm -hmm. And it, it creates somewhat of a separate dimension of that character to me. Whereas at the, at the moment in which the movie presents us with Jack again, I'm at the point now where it's almost like a cameo to me. And it feels cheaper because of it. And that's why I struggle with the what the guy doesn't mm. quite look and sound like the way I expect him to. Mm -hmm. I can see that. But I totally hear where you guys are coming from there. I think our final discussion topic ties directly into all of this, which is a fairly good movie on its own was always going to struggle against the reputation of The Shining. And I just think there's no way around that. Is that we have spent half the show talking about The Shining. Mm. Yeah. I mean... I think it it stands fairly well on its own. It doesn't try to, I mean, it, it brings back those scenes, right? But it does it with a purpose. It doesn't try to recreate all of this horror, just like, ah, wink, nudge, nudge. I mean, there is the red rum murder part like on the wall, but that's like a mirror reflection, you know, like that I could totally like forgive, but the way they set that up, but they didn't spend all this time like, oh, and now he's going down a hallway and does he, oh, wait, did he see? Nope. Okay. It's not like, it's not like full of these little Easter eggs. It just embraces the fact that, yeah, this is the world of the shining. And here's some stuff that is from that movie, but also this is its own thing. Yeah. Yeah. Especially so many years after the fact. Yeah. Yeah. I still wish they'd find something different. Be like, oh, we found this other place that this reminds me a lot of a place I went when I was a kid that, you know, it's hungry, right? Like that would have been my personal preference. I, I the latter points of this movie feel very fan servicey to me, but they are really cool. And as a fan of The Shining, <laughs> even though I actually kind of like this movie better, I, I do have an appreciation for them. So I, I just think it's a really fun movie. That's why I wanted to bring you guys. I wouldn't have wanted to put The Shining on this discussion docket, especially if, if we're going to watch Hereditary next week. That's just <laughs> hey. that's a difficult two weeks. Yeah. And I feel like this this movie, as dark as it is, like children being murdered and parents being murdered and horrific things happening and a man killing himself. There's a lot of bad things happen in this movie, but it's weird that I still think it's kind of fun. <laughs> it's just a really engaging modern horror film for me. Someone sticking their thumb into somebody's leg wound. Oh yeah. The femoral artery. Whoa. Oh, so much of that. Yeah. And, and again, like I said earlier, the lack of jump scares makes me very happy. Same. I don't like how modern horror movies took a cue from insidious 15 years ago and just said, cool, that's what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And I know jump scares <laughs> have been a thing for longer than that, but there there's a cheapness to it in recent years with some of the bigger blockbusters and horror that I'm glad this movie doesn't succumb to. Agreed. Right. Not just movies. I mean, gaming as well. You know, horror games, a lot yeah. of them are oh, yeah. just jump scare factories. And you've got to really go for somebody who's got an, a more existential bent to find games that are more about dread than about jump scares. Great point. Totally agreed. Well, guys, any final words on Dr. Sleep before we wrap the second episode of Movie Ghoul around? It's good. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a fan. <laughs> I think 
I think Rebecca Ferguson does a great job as Rose the Hat as much as you don't like the hat. Yeah, she is good. I hate that hat. (laughs) She's good at being beautiful and evil. She's good at selling the, oh, we didn't even talk about the hand injury. Uh, Oh, yeah. (laughs) Or the the file cabinets in Abra's mind. Oh, that was something that I actually paused to look at because when she, she's going to try to rummage through Abra's mind in her, you know, sort of, it's visualized as file cabinets in her room, which mm-hmm. reminds me actually of Hannibal. The novel Hannibal uh, talks about Dr. Lecter's mind palace. Oh, yeah. Where he has lots of information filed away. And so this is sort of Abra's sweeter, more innocent version of it. And it's just these sort of file drawers. And Rose opens the one labeled me. I looked carefully and it turns out that the folders are all labeled with the names of children's books. Oh, like none of it's personal information. It's all no, decoy stuff. You. Bud, not buddy, the snowy day, nappy hair, <laughs> Interesting. things like that. So. Yikes. Yeah. She lays several exquisite traps in this movie. <laughs> right. <laughs> that the knot are all too happy to fall into repeatedly. Yeah. Oh, it's so satisfying. <laughs> when she like I got you and then she's got no eyes and that's all creepy but it's it's great you said you'd come back and you did good oh, right yeah. <laughs> it's I think she's meant to look like a figurine that's next to her bed oh um, yeah like an anime oh, figurine interesting so oh that was something we didn't talk about that I forgot to put in the um, the docket, the scene where Rose is traveling to get into Abra's mind. It's like she's holding still and the world is scrolling past her as she's traveling there. I think it's so beautifully realized visually. Yeah. And the way that gravity sort of changes around her rather than her seeming to turn. It's like the world turns instead and she gets to stand still. Yeah. It's really cool. It happens a couple times in the movie, you know, when they're able to turn rooms mm-hmm. and and this all of this topsy-turvy stuff happens. It's a really cool scene. At, at times, it feels a little bit like a woman standing in front of a green screen while they flew a camera around. <laughs> I'm sure that's how they shot it. <laughs> but it but is a really cool scene. I think yeah. overall, it's it's not something I've seen visualized that way before. Yeah, it is. It is really interesting. And Michael, Mike, Mike Flanagan's really good at that. You know, I mean... One of the most impressive things to me about Hill House was that fifth episode where it was all single track and they went between the funeral home and the Hill House all with one camera shot for 50 minutes. It was it was incredible. Hmm. So he's he's certainly one of those guys pushing the envelope of horror. I would put him up there with, you know, I think Jordan Peele's pushing the envelope of horror in fun and unique ways. I think they're they're finding cool ways to defy these tropes that have defined a, you know, a genre for a really long time. Also, I do have to call out that Mind Palace is so Hannibal. Like, the fact that anyone's <laughs> so okay. in character. Listen, it's an actual thing. Like, I hate to say this, but it's an actual thing that, like, has been developed. That, like, it's a way... It's a psychological construct. Yeah, it's a psychological construct to, like, memorize and remember a bunch of stuff. Oh, man. I just got well actually on the Mind Palace. Okay. You should see mine, kiddo. Oh, my mind's a cathedral. No, no, I'm saying it's 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 a dumb name, uh, but I've lis- I've listened to Darren Brown talk about it extensively, so we don't need to go into that. <laughs> and on that note, uh, we'll go ahead and wrap up the show. A reminder: next week is Future Classics. We are watching Hereditary. Uh, what year did that come out, Nicole? Now, 2018, I want to say. So it's well within well within the uh, the confines of Future Classics. Yes. Very good. Well, let's go around the horn so you can find everybody online. Nicole, where are you at? I am at Nicole underscore Davis on Letterboxd. Very good. And what about you, David? Davlas, D-A-V-L-U-Z, Twitter and Instagram. Find me there. Right on. You can find me on Twitter at I am Brett Stewart. If you want to yell at me about The Shining, you can go ahead and do so <laughs> there. But if you want all of us to share that collective yelling, go to social.mgrpodcast.com. Oh, okay. <laughs> if you want to go there anyway, you can at least follow us. Yeah, just Brett. And then you can follow along on... Uh, um, you did this to us weeks when those are available to vote, which by the time this comes out, we're getting very close to the you did this to us for movie ghoul round. So if you're listening to this around episode release, keep a close eye for that. It'll be following soon after. And finally, you can email the show if you'd like. Hi, H-I at MGRpodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. 
But that will do it for myself, David and Nicole. We'll see you next week with Hereditary. Hereditary.